Life Audio. Hey, Dr. Bill Sinyard here with the Gospel Rant Podcast. We're going through the greatest gospel presentation of God's love for the unlovable in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, we have spent more than what, three millennia overlooking this book or misunderstanding it. Well-meaning, I'm not seeing, saying it's a conspiracy, but unfortunately, we've let the greatest gospel presentation of God's love for the unlovable just sit there in the dust. Well, no more. And I know this is not how you've heard it taught. I, I, I get that feedback. And by the way, love feedback, Bill at gospel-app.com. But stay with me, just check this out, and it could change your lives, beginning to heal relational and emotional wounds and hurts. It's a gospel presentation, right? And please make sure that you follow the Gospel Rant on whatever podcast platform you're on. If if you can, go to Apple Podcasts, where you can actually give me a review. Tell me if this is scratching an itch that you have, and then share it with someone else you think might uh, it might make a difference to look, I, we're here to change the world one Christian at a time. My passion is to help frustrated and beat up Christians begin to hear the music again and maybe even enter the dance. All right. Thank you ahead of time. Here's a quote from a blog by Elise Fitzpatrick, and I think it captures so much of uh, subconscious women's struggles in the church today. And again, women, tell me what you think. Bill at gospel-app.com. The Song of Songs is going to speak very directly to this in a very powerful and healing way. It's the end of she-shaming, right? So here's Elise. I always thought I was extra specially sinful because I was a woman. I never realized that I thought that about myself. Those words texted to me from a friend encapsulate in two short sentences a confusion that I see all too often in my sisters in Christ. Sure, they've read John 3.16. They know God loves them. They believe that Jesus died for their sins. They believe he rose again from the dead for their justification, Romans 4.25. But at the same time, they also experience a sense of shame simply because they're female. Like Eve before them, they feel the need to hide, to cover up, to try to avoid what they assume will be the frowning face of God. Oh, my. Let's talk into that. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Hey, welcome back. We're in movement one of the Song of Songs. If you want to see the entire layout of the structured Hebrew poetry, go to gospelrant.com. 
register on our mailing list. You'll get a free gift, but we'll also send you a diagram of all seven movements in the Song of Songs. And I think that will help dramatically. Okay? So the queen has already emotionally testified that she's alone. She has little support. She has no one that she can trust or count on. Everybody seems to have let her down. No one sees her as beautiful or lovable. Okay? Remember those two questions according to attachment theory? Is there anybody out there who has my back that I can really, really count on so I can sleep at night? And two, is there anybody out there that just sees me as attractive, as lovable, as having that much worth? And it's all captured in that tiny phrase, very poignant, beautiful, I am dark yet lovely. And remember, she leads with dark. So here's my expanded interpretive translation of what we've covered so far. O daughters of Jerusalem, though I'm attractive in some ways, my skin betrays me. See the dark tan? It clearly evidences the hours working in the fields. That's the vineyards. See, it is not pasty white like a pampered princess who was raised in the shaded courts. It's earthy and dark like the tents of desert raiders, like the dark curtains of the temple. Please do not stare judgmentally at me, for I am not by nature royalty. The sun has burnt my skin. The sun creation, right, has burnt me. That's what she's saying. And uh, how about her family of origin, which should have been a safe and secure community, ideally. Boy, in her point of, from her point of view, it's fallen ridiculously short. And maybe you can relate. Certainly, you know people who do. My brothers made me take care of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not taken care of. In my translation, that's not all. What little personal glory that I had, my virginity, I also squandered. I'm not righteous. I am not worthy of this relationship and love to a queen. So you can see the shame coming in. So the word for neglected um, is natar. And again, like the previous passage we picked it up in the last podcast, it's sometimes used to harbor anger as well. Look at Psalm 103, verse 9, and Jeremiah 3, 5, and, and verse 12 as well. So there's some burning again. That's the theme throughout all of this, a burning that has robbed her, that has uh, t- scorched her. Well, what does it mean she's, she's uh, not taken care of her vineyard? She's neglected her vineyard. Well, it could refer to two things, neither good, both self-destructive. First, maybe she just hasn't kept up her beauty, her appearances. And uh, so what's the point? So I might as well not take showers and fix my hair. And and matter of fact, I'm going to go over the top. I'm going to glam up and wear outlandish clothes and do crazy things because if people are going to laugh at me and look down at me, I might as well get some fun out of it, right? So it's maybe she hasn't kept up her appearances. or But more than likely, it's a reference to her sexuality. She's let her sexuality, her purity, go down the tubes. So likely she's no longer a virgin. Pre-marriage, she's no longer a virgin. She's been sexually active. Now, we don't know if she was raped or if she found a young man, fell in love, and and had sex with him. We don't know. But in that day, to not be a virgin reduces your value in the eyes of the general populace, right, before pre-marriage. That's what I'm talking about. And it's reflected in the dowry. Um, it, it went down to nothing, zero. In that day and time, unmarried non-virgins really had three fates. She could become a beggar. She could become a temple prostitute, serve in one of the pagan temples, 
or she could become the common variety street prostitute. And let me be cynical, and we cringe, we moderns, but in patriarchal cultures, look, a young girl's main socioeconomic value to the family was her dowry price. And in such cultures, honestly, that's how she was valued. It's so different today, but the Bible was spoken in that culture, and that's what we have. So from what we can put together, in ancient Israel, there are two stages of the marriage process. There's the Erosene and the Nisuin. The Erosene was the betrothal celebration. And, and these are, could be as much as a year or even longer uh, separated. So the, the betrothal, the Erosene, uh, involved the payment of a bridal price, which was calculated and negotiated between the groom's family and the bride's family. It's, it's the Mohar no doubt, again, if we Westerners would cringe at this. It feels like a transaction of ownership of this girl between two men. In most of Old Testament history, yeah, the bride, not only is she being transferred, if you will, from one home to another, but she doesn't have a lot of legal say in the matter legally based on case law, narrow case law that we have. But, you know, no doubt many did influence the contract, I'm sure. But this girl, the queen, the Shulamite, would probably not have been a direct party in the transaction. Technically, the groom is paying the family. This is how the society and the court saw it. He's paying the family for the loss of future income from the girl, right? And after the Mohar changes hands there, they are legally married. I mean, in the courts, in the society, in the culture, they're married. They're husband and wife, but they have not consummated the marriage. They're not living together in the same household. They're not having sex. Now, like I said, as long as a, maybe a year later, he goes to prepare a place for her. But you, you hear the shadow of Jesus's comments. Uh, and when he returns, he takes her, Lachak, he lifts her up. There's a uh, a procession where she is lifted up and carried, and uh, that's the Nisuin, the actual marriage cele- celebration. Think of Jesus' first miracle. This was the, the Nisuin, and it is at the beginning of the marriage celebration where they consummate the marriage. Okay, how much was the Mohar? If the bride-to-be was a virgin, all right, the scant historic record we have is that the established Mohar, based upon real narrow case law in the Old Testament, was 50 shekels of silver. So Deuteronomy 22, 29 says, if a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and rapes her, and they are discovered, he shall pay the girl's father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the girl for he's violated her and he can never divorce her as long as he lives. So the idea is that he's paying the father what the mohar would have been worth. So so there's one data point that at least at that point in time, in that context, 50 shekels of silver was legally reasonable. Okay? Uh, consistent with another passage, Deuteronomy 22, 13 to 21. It's a little long passage, so bear with me. If a man takes a wife, and and by the way, it also has very some, important connotations to the Song of Songs. If a man takes a wife and after lying with her, dislikes her, and slanders her and gives her a bad name, saying, I married this woman, but when I approached her, meaning had sex with her, I didn't find proof of her virginity. 
Now, the proof was classically blood on the marriage sheet, a ruptured hymen after they had sex and blood on the marriage sheet, okay? And then uh, if he says that, and he's lying, by the way, and the girl's father and mother brings proof that she was a virgin to the town elders at the gate, meaning the sheet which uh, with blood on it that they saved for such an occasion, uh, insurance, the girl's father will say to the elder, I gave my daughter in marriage to this man, but he dislikes her. That's the point. Now he has slandered her and said, I did not find your daughter to be a virgin. But here's the proof of my daughter's virginity. Then her parents shall display the cloth before the elders of the town, and the elders shall take the man and punish him. They shall find him a hundred shekels of silver, right? You get, it's the 50, and they double it because of a punishment. And give them to the girl's father, because this man has given an Israelite virgin a bad name. She shall continue to be his wife. Boy, that's awkward. He must not divorce her as long as he lives. If, however, the charge is true and no proof of the virginity can be found, she shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of her town shall stone her to death. She has done a disgraceful thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. Which, by the way, the queen in the Song of Songs, the Shulamite, has just confessed to. She has been promiscuous while still in her father's house, uh, at least legally. Uh, we don't know if that she could have been raped, she could have been sexually active, but either way, the law would have probably, likely found her promiscuous. So you must purge the evil from among you. Deuteronomy 22, 13 to 21. Look, we don't have any examples of that historically, that anybody did that, but there it is. That's the case law. So the value of virginity, according to this narrow slice of case law in the Old Testament, was 50 shekels. And again, I'm, I'm even cringing as we're talking about this. This is so outside of our scope, uh, not, but in much of the world, it didn't. So if she was a virgin and then after consummation was wrongly accused by her husband, the, the man's going to be fined double the mohar to cover the bad name and shame, the, the scandalous libel and slander, okay? But, uh, you know, it was a patriarchal culture. I'm not saying that to excuse it. I'm just saying historically that explains it. And to, by today's sensitivity, oh my gosh. Well, anyway, the fine would be paid to her father, not her. Uh, interesting point as well. So 50 shekels, what is that? Well, in Judges, another Old Testament reference, Judges 17, Micah offers a young Levite what's called a living wage of 10 shekels a year plus board and rent. So if that's the case, then 50 shekels would represent five years of normal living wage. Any other historical evidence? David paid Saul a mohar of 100 foreskins of Philistines for Michael. Well, I'm not <laughs> I don't know what the going rate was for pagan foreskins. I mean, not much today. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, so anyway, Jacob, another historical reference, maybe a better one, worked for Laban seven years each for Rachel and Leah. So what's a mohar? It's negotiated, right? Uh, and it, it does depend upon, I no doubt, status and how much uh, money, socioeconomic status of the, the, the bride and of the husband-to-be. But let's say five years, one to seven years is, is within that range of wages, one to seven years of wages, right? It's not no small amount. But, and, and 
maybe the bigger thing is a shame to the family, right? In this honor-shame culture, that's a big, big, big deal. And the possibility that the woman might get stoned publicly, all right? So hold that in mind. When we get to movement four, this is going to become very, very, very important because, you know, the, the girl, the queen is wondering what's going to happen when she's discovered. And that's lingering. That's a shadow over everything she fears, all the anxiety and uh, uh, un- discomfort. Okay? So if she is not a virgin pre-marriage, what's the mohar? Well, zero. The bottom of the market just fell away. In fact, like I said, if there's no blood on the marriage sheet and consummation in the marriage event, the law directs that she could be stoned because she's being promiscuous while still in her father's house, and the law says that's a disgraceful thing, and and that needs to be purged, okay? Well, uh, so the point is there's financial reasons, if we want to be cold and cynical, there are financial reasons for families to guard the virginity of their daughters. It would only be reasonable that her brothers would do whatever they could to protect her value, Uh, not just because of the mohar, but because of shame. And if they cared about her, they would like to guard her reputation as well. They don't appear to be ignorant of that. In 8, eight to 9, they're reported as making strategic plans just to make sure she's a virgin. We have a young sister, and her breasts are not yet grown. What shall we do for our sister for the day she's spoken of? If she is a wall, we will build towers of silver on her. If she is a door, well, we're going to close her with panels of cedar. We get the idea if she's chased a wall, right? You can't enter a wall. It, it blocks entrance. Her value ceiling is high. I mean, think towers of silver, a poetic exaggeration. But, and by the way, so they had thought about her value. Uh, walls are more valuable than doors. But if she's sexually active, meaning a door that opens, we're going to have to hammer it in with panels of cedar, drastic measures to protect her from from her own uh, choices. Whatever the brothers had in mind, whether they meant it for her good or for theirs, it didn't work, and she says so. Does that make any? Does that make sense? We're getting to know the queen so, so, so well, and hopefully we can begin to relate with her. Our cultures are different, but shame is not. Shame is the same, okay? All right, this is a good place as any to take another break and get a word from our sponsors. We'll see you in a brief, brief moment. So whatever the brothers had in mind, whether they meant it for her good or theirs, they didn't pull it off. They, they did not. They didn't do a good job. That's her point of view. And, and it seems like, yeah, I think we could observe that's correct as well. Um, so she says, what little personal glory, meaning worth. Oh, my goodness. This is her queen statement as she's entering in this relationship, kind of wondering why the king is attracted to her. She says, look, what little personal glory that I did have, my virginity, I also squandered. I neglected, right? I'm not righteous. I'm not worthy of the crown and love to a queen, meaning I'm not worthy of this relationship. So I don't understand it. And it scares me. My vineyard, I have not kept. So it's poetry. She's not talking about a smaller plot of grapevines that that are hers that she's carved off somewhere and she gets the benefit of that. You know, my love, my brothers made me labor on their vines and mine fell into disrepair no not no 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 because in other places her vineyard poetically refers to her her vagina her purity her place of sexual pleasure and pleasuring um so 
What are we to take from this? Like I said, we don't know how she lost her virginity. And again, in poetry, it's not important. The question is, what we're establishing is her character, her identity, and how she sees herself and how the culture sees herself. She's shamed. Was she raped? Again, shamed. It's not beyond imagination that working in the vineyard exposed her to unsavory characters. Well, I think that's on her brothers, but nevertheless, she's going to bear the burden of the shame. Tragically, she might have been put in compromising position by the indifference or, or anger, right? That's what we've been picking up in the previous podcast of her brothers. She might have chosen to have sex with a young man out of young love and desire. Maybe maybe she was angry at her brothers and were kind of sticking it to them. You know, she was a teenager. Maybe the couple had planned to run away, get away from the brothers, start over somewhere, a cabin in the hills, away from the unjust treatment from her family. Maybe, I mean, maybe uh, this young man has said the exact same things that the king is going to say to her. You're, you're, you don't have any flaws, right? So maybe she has reason to be cynical when the king says those things. And listen, if, if there was a young man, he did, obviously didn't stick around. He's not in, in the poems. He, she doesn't mention him. So I think there's a tinge of negativity to the phrase, I have not kept. Um, I think self-loathing, self-blaming is certainly not a pleasant memory to her if she was willing to be intimate with a young man, that spark of joy and pleasure and intimacy has been relegated to the list, the, the growing list of why she is now dark, right? And, and maybe he called me his queen too, but, you know, by the way, she doesn't blame her brothers at this point in time. She's blaming herself. Uh, again, she could have been raped and blames herself that she didn't stop it. There's, there's, it's very complicated. It's good poetry. Look, in summary, from her point of view, the entire universe has beat the value out of her, and she couldn't stop it. Her caregivers are abusive, indifferent, uncaring, inept, and even the ever-present Israeli son takes advantage of her, just scorches her. She's suffered shaming at her own hand as well. It's a complete package, right? Either she allowed the shame or wasn't able to stop the shame. Either way, her beatdown is complete. So as we now look at this teenage girl, we, we have to feel her pain, her darkness. We have to relate to that, right? I can almost hear her critical inner voice crying out to her midbrain uh, repeatedly, probably day after day, night after night. If only things had been different, if I had been born in a different place and time, if my parents had family had cherished me or loved on me or spoke honoringly to me, adored me, if I hadn't been forced into harsh field labor, if I hadn't lost my virginity, uh, if I hadn't been raped or date raped or had sex with someone who told me they loved me, but then left me used and exposed just like everyone else in my life, if all of that, maybe I would have been lovely. Maybe I would have been desirable. Maybe I would have been enviable. But <laughs> those aren't the cards I've been dealt. So now no righteous, desirable man would ever take me. Oh, sure, they may want to have sex with me, but no so-called righteous man would pay a worthy dowry, a mohar for me. Why would such a man add my shame to his name? He wouldn't. He would rather just pay me for sex. And when he's done satisfying his longings with me, he would just move on to someone else. 
just like everybody else. No, my lot is to just remain alone, huddle together with the other dark yet lovelies to find survival, some security somewhere. We, the unredeemable, poor in spirit. See the point? Any righteous king would avoid her or more than likely punish her. Certainly not marry them. And the point is that she's right about one thing either way. She is nowhere near up to snuff for this king. He deserves royalty. He deserves chastity. And none of this she can offer to him. Deep down in her soul, she's paranoid and suspicious and cautious and just can't imagine what the king is seeing in her. An uncultured, used piece of flesh. If it's too good to believe, right? And she's afraid that he is going to find out. Uh, He's going to find out her dirty little hidden secret. Uh, She hasn't kept her vineyard. And yet, here's, here's the ambivalence. When she dares to look up and the king's gaze, as he's looking down upon her, she sees something different and feels at least some of the love by him for her as she is. And her head is about to explode. I get it. Why does he love me? How can it last? And the king, he's certainly going to come to his senses, and he's just going to toss me away. He's going to toss me into the dust, just like everybody else, or have me stoned. When she looks in the mirror, right through her own measuring gaze, she doesn't see that in her eyes. She can only feel shame at who and what she has become. She just, she can't process this guy who is attracted to the likes of her. Maybe the ladies are right. Maybe the brothers are right. Her deep coping mechanisms, the subconscious mechanisms erupt, and her guard goes up to try to protect whatever may be left of her shredded heart. And boy, let the reactionary behavior begin. It's a classic case of reactionary behavior in the rest of movement one. And and including hurt him, the king, before he hurts you. Dump him before he dumps you. Look, here's an excerpt from... Linda K. Klein's very powerful book, I recommend it, Pure Inside the Evangelical Movement that Shamed a Generation of Young Women and How I Broke Free. It's about the purity culture in our own churches, particularly evangelical churches, that is shaming so many of our young queens. How do you think the queen in the Song of Songs would feel in most of our churches? Well, imagine 14 to 15, 16 years old tops, traumatized as a child and a young woman, and now sexually impure, sitting alone in the dark, trying to keep her secrets to herself, listening to the the endless purity talks by some youth pastor that is only giving more fodder to her already critical inner voice, and all all that's happening is more shame is being dumped upon her. Do you think that she would just sit there and be shamed? Yeah, maybe. Um, Maybe reactionary behavior, she would just leave and never come back. The cure, of course, what we're finding in the Song of Songs, listening to the young ladies and parents of those young ladies, the cure is the love of the king. But is that message breaking through in our youth groups and our churches? Well, here's Klein. The purity message is not about sex. Rather, it is about us, who we are, who we are expected to be, and, and who it is said we will become if we fail to meet those expectations. By the way, she's referring to purity before marriage. This is the language of shame. Shame is the feeling I am, or somebody else will think I am, bad. 
as opposed to guilt, for example, which is associated with the feeling I did something bad. The religious purity messages many of us received as girls were not about what we might do, but about what we would be or be seen as. Of course, we are all different and therefore respond to shaming of this kind differently. Our family dynamics, the affirmation we receive or don't receive for other aspects of ourselves, the intersecting messages we are given about who we are based on our race, our ethnicity, our socioeconomic status, our physical and mental health, and so on, all have roles to play. But the conversations that I've been having over the past 12 years makes it clear that the influence of the consistent shaming embedded into the religious purity message, particularly during stages of extreme neuroplasticity, such as adolescence, is for sexual development, can be extreme for many. Uh, meaning, this, she is saying we're, we're creating a generation of shamed women. That's not good. And by the way, this is such a great time for this message of the song or songs to come through. God adores shamed women. Shamed women, teenagers, we got that, right? God's love is for the unlovable. God's love loves you as you are. That's the song of songs. Keep listening. Here's Klein again. After all, researchers have found that our brains bend toward whatever it is that our attention is directed to. It follows that if an adolescent is regularly giving given shaming messages like the purity message that a girl or a woman is utterly and fundamentally pure or impure, good or bad, pleasing or displeasing, desirable or undesirable, etc., based on her sexual expressions or lack thereof, she will become more likely to experience shame in association with sex than she otherwise may have been. As psychiatrist Dr. Kurt Thompson explains in his book, The Soul of Shame, Quote, with repeated exposure to events in which we feel shame, we pay attention to and via our early neuroplastic flexibility more permanently encode these shame networks. Thus, they become more easily able to fire later on, even when activated by the most minor or even unrelated stimuli. Close quote. This is not good news for the shamed individual or their potential partners. Shame tends to make people feel powerless and even worthless. It creates a fear of abandonment that ironically makes us push others away. All right, you get that. I'm afraid of being dumped, so I'm going to dump somebody else. That's uh, the paranoid loneliness. Uh, Peterson coined the phrase. Uh, Back to Klein. We want to hide those aspects of ourselves we are ashamed of, so we may emotionally withdraw from those close to us, lash out at them to keep them at bay, or isolate ourselves in self-blame. Whatever it takes to keep the world, including ourselves, away from those parts of us that we have come to believe makes us bad. Over the years, shame adds up, but it can happen so slowly we don't even notice it. We may look at each shaming incident one at a time and tell ourselves that what was said or done to us wasn't that bad. In time, we become less and less sure that we can or should heal. Rather than seek help, we bury our shaming experiences deep in our body where they are held similarly to trauma. Oh, my goodness. Look, by the way, it is trauma. It clearly is trauma. And the Song of Songs is movement after movement of this shame-hidden, paranoid, triggering queen. Uh, she's doing everything she can to protect herself 
shame, right? Not consciously, but subconsciously. And this king, this loving king, just keeps pursuing her, embracing her, giving her words, just loving on her as she is. That's why I'm saying this is the greatest gospel presentation in the Old Testament. Um, just stay with us. <laughs> Follow the, the, the uh, gospel rant wherever you listen to podcast, the platform, give us a review. You'd be surprised uh, how many people look at the reviews before they listen to the podcast. And and you're going to be a co-conspirator in helping us get this message out to people who are carrying a lot of shame. Yeah? All right. Honestly, Klein has largely captured the queen here in, in this movement number one. She's sad and tragic, dark yet lovely. But the good news is that this is where the king God finds her. This is where God's transforming, healing, non-shaming. That's important, non-shaming love. The king never she shames. He just doesn't. Um, And it starts to penetrate the shame barriers, the subconscious deeply rooted in her midbrain barriers and begins little by little to listen, make her feel loved, and to make her feel lovable again, to make her feel worth again. In his arms. That's the key, in his arms. You're not going to do that apart from that. You'll see what I mean. Uh, Again, I'm begging you, help me get this message to young girls in your family and churches that have been traumatized by the purity message. You can be a savior for that young girl, Uh, a co-savior, right? And if you share it, let me know so I can pray with you for that person. You don't have to mention names. Just let me know. I sent this to a young girl who's struggling with this, and we're praying for transformation. Bill at gospel-app.com. I'm happy to pray with you. You probably heard we created a little bookmark prayer that young person can say out loud to their traumatized, shamed midbrain. We're trying to make a difference, not just blab about things. We're actually trying to uh, see healing for shamed people. So this bookmark, say it aloud, it takes repetition because we're working against an old habit two or three times a day for 30 days or so. And But you might be surprised the difference it's going to make. It sounds absurd, but I could tell you story after story. I mean, contact me, Bill, at gospel-app.com. I'll tell you a few. Here it is. Just listen and and then have and repeat it and have other people repeat it. Jesus follower, strictly because of what Jesus did for you 2,000 years ago, God actually loves you, right, as you are, shamed and all. Uh, he loves you no matter what's been done to you or what you've done. Jesus follower, God actually loves you. All right, back to it. He loves you with all of his heart, as much as the Father loves the Son, the Son loves the Father. He can't love you any more or any less than he does right now. He loves you as you are, not as you should be or could be. You can't add to this love or take away from it. So even if those dirty little secrets get out, which, by the way, he already knows, it doesn't change his love for you. Now, I get it. It often feels like you've messed it up or need to do something so that God would like you better. Not so. How do you experience it more now? Simple, good news. There is something that you can do and are invited to do. You can take daily baby steps to ask the Spirit inside of you to make you know, experience, and feel just how much God loves you right now. Just ask. Ask again later today. Ask tomorrow. Make it a spiritual habit. You know, I've been in churches in three continents, and I'm telling you, I don't see this message getting out nearly as much as the purity message is, is, is happening. Uh, this one... Both are powerful. One actually tears down women. One builds them up. Uh, you, you pick. Listen, you can get this in bookmark form from the webpage store at gospelrant.com. 
uh, hand it out to a bunch of people, including young girls that you know in your youth group. And by the way, again, when you're at the page, you do me a big, big favor, click follow, go to the podcast platform. Uh, that'll give you all the future podcasts. Uh, and by the way, remember, if you register, if you sign up on the mailing list on the GospelRant.com mailing list, you get the Song of Songs diagram and a free gift. So do that as well. You should know I'm rewriting my book on the Song of Songs. If you're on the mailing list, you'll get a heads up when we're about to publish. Uh, it'll be a book that's going to take the purity message head on. Your support is important to me. Let me know what you're getting out of these the series. Bill at gospel-app.com. Give the podcast a review. Again, it might encourage someone else to listen. Thanks to lifeaudio.com for their support and platform. Again, all of this, thanks ahead of time. Take heart, child of God. Hello, this is Dr. Doug Grotheis, host of Truth Tribe, where we seek the truth through reason and evidence about what matters most. And we are not tribal since truth is for everyone. Please join me at the Truth Tribe as I discuss the reasons for Christian faith, the Christian worldview, and moral issues such as abortion and gender ideology. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search Truth Tribe on your favorite podcast app.